to us today. Uh, we don't often get that clear picture in such a short time of uh, history of, our, of an important part of our culture. Uh, I, I was particularly uh, intrigued with the, the uh, interweaving of, of uh, the economics uh, on the West Coast and, 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 and art and how the, uh, the Haida, uh, when they were at their lowest level of uh, economically, when, when, when their pelts had given out, uh, were able to recover uh, somewhat with art. Um, the question I, I want to ask you, don't you feel that uh, it's about time that we woke up to the fact that, that art and culture are that important, importantly interwoven with the economics, that uh, we'd better take a harder look at, at that whole side of our culture. Well, there's one response to that, and of course, yes, uh, art and culture and economics are all carefully interwoven and all contribute uh, uh, to our culture. Among the Haida is just an example of how close they're, they're intertwined, but they are equally intertwined here, uh, and indeed, uh, uh, Lethbridge stands to uh, benefit uh, substantially uh, by any emphasis on art in this, uh, in this community. So on the local level, uh, above all, I, I think that would be great. It's one of the reasons that I came here 20 years ago was uh, looking at the level of cultural activity that went on in this town. I had never seen a concentration of artists of all types in a city of this size anywhere. Although what you've got to realize that Lethbridge at 70,000, 80,000 people uh, is actually bigger than Florence, Italy, where the high renaissance happened uh, when that occurred. Uh, the actual population of, of Florence was about 70,000 people uh, when it was hosting Michelangelo and the turtles, uh, and uh, uh, so in fact, it doesn't. You don't need New York City. You don't need uh, uh, an enormous place in order to have an enormous uh, uh, impact on the art of the rest, uh, the rest of the world. I mean, just think of George. Boris Miller and Janet Cardiff, uh, who you may not know, but who are international superstars, uh, who were, uh, she was at the University of Lethbridge teaching, and uh, they were here in Lethbridge when they started their, uh, uh, their ascendancy into, uh, into the world stage. So yes, indeed, anything we can do in that direction, uh, we should uh, only out of self-interest, if nothing else, uh, because it's bound to benefit us. Anything else, you guys? Thanks, Leslie. My name is Peter Green. Um, thanks very much for your overview of the, the uh, up and down uh, road of Canadian art in the past. And I'm wondering, looking into the future, uh, particularly in view of the, of the success that people like Janet Cardiff and George Burroughs Mirror are, are having, um, incidentally, there we saw their show in Ed the Edmonton uh, Art Gallery a couple of weeks ago, and it's quite impressive. But in view of that kind of thing that's happening, what do you see in the future in terms of the recognition for, of, can, of Canadian art on the world stage in the future? Oh. <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, the one part about that is you're asking me to comment on what artists will do in the future. And one thing I've always found I've never been able to actually predict is what artists will do in the future. They tend to be a fairly unpredictable lot. Uh, everything would be so smooth if they weren't so creative, right? Uh, <laughs> But uh, so it's actually a very difficult question. I don't actually prognosticate into the future as to uh, what will happen. But uh, I assume Canada's played a leading role in our 
uh, on the world stage now for decades and decades and decades. Uh, the two people who I've just met are uh, are uh, only a um, fraction of the population of the Canadian artistic community who are you know, the toast of the international world. I see that continuing. Uh, the creative power within this country uh, is phenomenal. Uh, the one thing that could erode it is, of course, uh, government policy, and I do notice that the, that's uh, tends to uh, have uh, less of a priority for funding the arts or uh, uh, supporting them, and uh, something that needs to be addressed and thought about if and if you value the arts and uh, and their role and what it's done for Canada. So I would like to see that policy uh, perhaps reconsidered and rethought and perhaps reversed, uh, because uh, our position on the world stage is is in fact a result of the fact that we do have uh, such good support for the arts. So uh, that's what I'd like to see. That's what I'd like to see in the arts in terms of what will be produced. That's what creativity is all about: is making up something new that no one's ever actually thought of before. So <laughs> far be it for me to think that I'm thinking up what they're going to do before they actually do it. Uh, yeah, Ian McKenna. Um, a few uh, years ago um, in Glasgow. Uh, I noticed in, uh, that, that there was a, a jacket, a beautiful creation of a jacket, that had belonged to a, a Sioux warrior called Rain in the Face. And uh, he was the one that killed Colonel Custer. And, uh, but it found its way across to, to Glasgow for some reason, possibly with uh, Buffalo Bill Circus or, or whatever it was. My question, though, is um, in terms of repatriation, because it was repatriated, uh, you know, once, uh, you know, they knew where to take it back to. And I wonder if that is an important element of art, you know, native art, that it has uh, often gone across to Europe, but there is also the, the question of, well, should it be repatriated? And I wonder, I know that wasn't part of your talk, but it seems to me, probably quite a, a, a live issue still around here. Fascinating question. Can I just go back uh, in my slides just to give you an illustration here? Way back to the beginning, 100 years in half an hour. You know, I'm, thank you for staying with me on that. <laughs> um, back to uh, Duncan Campbell Scott in 1922 in the Crowner Potlatch. Uh, this is Duncan Campbell Scott, the guy who came to power in 1913, who changed the Indian Act and the potlatch ban in order to finally make it effective. Uh, and uh, his, his idea uh, during his career, it was stated in Hansard, uh, that is the recordings of uh, Parliament, in, uh, that at the end of his tenure, uh, there would not be a single person in Canada who would be able to say, I am an Indian. Uh, he called it the Indian question. And with all the implications that that implied. Uh, he was certain that during, he would do... Uh, he was the man who enforced the, uh, uh, the notorious uh, residential school policies as, uh, as well as the potlatch ban. Uh, he was quite a figure. And governments came and went, but he lasted through all of them until he resigned in 1933. And we're coming to your point, because he instructed in 1921, uh, he instructed his Indian agents in British Columbia to finally enforce the potlatch ban and make it effective. So I'm on the clock who had been resisting it. They were the primary target. And at the Cramner potlatch, uh, what they did was uh, um, they arrested the participants in the potlatch, the, and the jail sentences were like six months in Ocala prison for carrying a gift across 
the uh, the uh, the floor of the house that was was held in, uh, six months for doing a dance, um, six months for uh, uh, wearing a mask. Uh, so this is the type of art object that we think of in terms of Northwest Coast Native art. Uh, these are Kwakwakwak uh, um, objects. Uh, what he did was uh, something that is was actually illegal at the time and remains so, uh, is that he made deals with the people who were in the uh, uh, who were being who he was prosecuting, and. Uh, uh, not Duncan Campbell Scott, sorry, the local Indian agent made deals with the people who he was prosecuting under Duncan Campbell Scott's direction uh, to um, uh, make deals and confiscated their potlatch paraphernalia. So these would all be like crest images. They would be things that only one person would be allowed to wear or display at a potlatch because they had the right to, to do it. So this material, a lot of it, this is only one shot of the material uh, that was uh, confiscated from that potlatch. Uh, he actually filled the local school with it when it came right down to it. Uh, and um, uh, his solution to what to do with it was to send it to where it belonged, which was in museums. So that uh, material was actually distributed uh, internationally. Uh, it was, uh, he was instructed to keep it in Canada, uh, but he didn't. Uh, it actually, he sold a lot of it to the Hay Foundation of the American Indian in New York City. And that material for decades, until the 70s, I believe, uh, remained there. And the First Nations people uh, who participated had been asking for it back ever since because they understood the law. They understood that uh, the process had not been according to the uh, laws as they were written, and that this material should never have been taken. Uh, and th that's part of the Repatriation Act. And then finally, this material uh, was, in fact, uh, returned uh, from almost all of the museums and galleries in the world that held on to it. Uh, but our institutions were notorious. The uh, Royal Ontario Museum uh, just refused to respond to the letters. Uh, for decades and decades and decades until they were finally literally shamed into uh, into returning it. But the, um, the process of repatriation uh, has been ongoing for the last three or four decades and is still undergoing uh, uh, the bones in particular, uh, a bone of contention, uh, that uh, ethnologists uh, collected skeletal remains from graves that they were plundering and uh, sent them back to the museums and... Uh, we're one of those strange cultures that dig up other people's graves and collect the material and display it, which I always find strange and odd. Um, but uh, this fascination. But um, the, they have been asking for those back and to give them proper burial, reburial, and that's now occurring as well. So it's a huge and complex question uh, of which this is actually a, a, a major portion. Yeah, and, it's, it, and it is ongoing. And on the Northwest Coast, it's a huge question. Um, other groups aside from these have been asking for the material back. Uh, these people, uh, the Kwakwakwak, actually built two museums, one in Alert Bay, uh, the community we saw, uh, one on uh, Cape Mudge, uh, to um, uh, house the works that came back, and hundreds and hundreds of pieces were returned uh, to their proper ownership. So it is an ongoing process uh, uh, to this day. Any, anything else on that? Because it's an interesting question. Okay, great. Hi, Bonnie. Bonnie May. Bonnie uh, May. You mentioned uh, there was a difference in outlook between the Canadians and the American government to the native artwork. So, in your opinion, what was that uh, 
due to because we know the Americans didn't treat the natives much better than the Canadians. But actually, in many respects, the Americans treated the uh, First Nations peoples of their country much worse than they occurred in Canada. Uh, there were you know, forced dislo- relocations of major peoples that actually resulted in uh, many, many deaths, uh, particularly in the Southwest. However, so what is the difference between uh, what occurred in the United States, particularly in the 1920s and 1930s, and what was going on in Canada at the same time? And why were the Americans during that crucial period of the 20s and 30s able to start looking at First Nations cultures and their arts as being part of American cultural identity and seeing those cultures as being continuous and alive rather than dead and in need of revival? Ah, the answer to that, (laughs) the answer to that is extremely complex, Uh, but uh, just to summarize the major points, this primarily occurred in the American Southwest, or was initiated in the American Southwest. During the 1920s, a group of very influential American citizens, uh, some of whom were very rich and very powerful, uh, began to move into the American Southwest, and many of these were women. Uh, Elizabeth White um, was one of them. She was uh, an heiress uh, with a newspaper chain at her command. But uh, these people uh, were moving into the Southwest uh, to get away from New York City, and they saw the art that was still being produced there, silver, turquoise jewelry, pottery, uh, weaving, uh, the traditional arts of the American Southwest. And they realized that these were ongoing, and they realized that this could play, these arts could play uh, a very important role in something that they were thinking about at that time that was also being thought about in Canada. And that is, what is American culture? What is American identity? What represents it? And they proposed the idea in the 20s that American uh, purely American art that didn't owe anything to Europe actually already existed, and it existed in the uh, Native American arts that were still living and practiced. And so they began to promote this idea. Now, it met with resistance um, by people who believed that American uh, Native arts had died or were gone, but they, were, they had the wherewithal to actually promote that, that notion. So along came the Depression in the 1929-1930, and... The new government, the New Deal government under Roosevelt, uh, began to realize that they could actually sponsor American Indian art uh, as a saleable item and uh, began to do so. Uh, so John Collier, the guy who I, you saw a picture of that I didn't identify, I'll show you him. This guy in the middle. Uh, John Collier uh, sponsored this. And uh, uh, the, uh, and actually had under the federal government in the states uh, something called the American Indian Arts and Crafts Board uh, put into place, uh, and it was there directly to uh, uh, educate, uh, to promote, uh, to ensure quality, uh, to distribute, uh, to train uh, First Nations artists, uh, and ensure the production uh, of high standards of First Nations art in the states. And it was very successful, uh, and they passed uh, a legislation. 
legislation called the American Indian Arts and Crafts Act in 1935, uh, which underwrote this entire enterprise. So it had to do with a combination of individuals, a common, well, starting off with the fact, it had to do with the fact that there was an art that was still alive, that was still being practiced, that was of high aesthetic value uh, to draw on. Uh, secondly, they had to have people to promote it originally, and that would be these groups of artists and wealthy, powerful individuals uh, who were willing to convince the rest of America that this was a good thing, and then a government who was willing to sponsor it and promote it and ensure that uh, this actually went into place and occurred. So those are the three most important factors in the American program that distinguished it from the Canadian. And then when Canada saw this was occurring, uh, they came up with the concept of revival. I'm going on and on here, but it's a complex question. They came up with the complex, uh, the idea of a revival. And the primary reason that they called it a revival was... uh, they had originally said Native culture was dead. So that if Native culture was now evidently not dead and was being produced, uh, something had to have brought it back from the it's more abundant state. And so consequently they said, ah, and lo, it will be revived. And uh, in fact, as Mungo Martin demonstrated, it didn't need to be revived. As in the States, it was still being practiced. It just wasn't being noticed that it was being practiced. So there were huge differences in the position of the various governments on, and sponsors and people on the state of the art within the two separate nations. Does Bonnie May, does that answer the question? Great. Aaron Chubb. Um, I'm wondering, I remember during the Olympics there was some controversy over the contract for the couch and sweaters, the yes. couch and sweaters being given to the bay. Thank you. Uh, the couch and sweaters being given to the bay, the Hudson Bay Company, yes. uh, when it was uh, traditionally handmade by, by women uh, on the coast, uh, native women on the coast. Um, did you see any other any controversy with uh, with the totem pole and cultural assimilation of the totem pole, or sorry, um, uh, appropriation of the totem pole? Yeah, or uh, during the Olympics, uh, like who made the totem poles that were displayed there? Good question. Uh, for uh, just to elaborate on what happened with the uh, Cowichan sweaters, the Cowichan people are a Coast Salish people. Uh, they live just north of Victoria. Uh, they uh, had a traditional type of weaving. Uh, the Coast Salish were very, very uh, well known on the West Coast. Uh, on, uh, prior to contact, during contact, after contact, right down to the present, uh, for their handling of fabrics, the primary artists then were women, uh, and uh, they turned from a traditional type of blanket weaving uh, to making Cowichan sweaters which I suspect you probably know uh, what they're like, Uh, but that occurred in the 20s, 30s, 40s. Uh, And uh, these sweaters are very distinctive and very unique, and they actually have them copyrighted. Uh, But what happened, oddly enough, during the Olympics was they were approached to produce, uh, I think, 700 sweaters uh, in mass production uh, uh, to be sold by the Hudson's Bay um, during the Olympics. And they actually had a contract uh, proposed and put in place, and they had they put in place the mechanism they did, the Kawichan did, put in place to uh, uh, to produce these sweaters, and they had the they had the ability to do so. And then suddenly they discovered that the Hudson's Bay had contracted them out to, I believe, someplace in the Orient, but I'm not sure, and uh, that uh, they uh, were no longer being consulted or asked uh, uh, to produce the material. And indeed, the sweaters that were sold at the Hudson's Bay uh, were produced off offshore. Uh, they were not from the coast of, of, of British Columbia. They weren't even from Canada. Uh, but some were going to assume bean counter at the, uh, in the Hudson's Bay decided it would be cheaper. But 
Uh, you're asking about was there any problem with the poles that were used at the opening ceremonies, for example. And no, I don't believe there were because I believe uh, proper consultation had occurred uh, with the Coast Salish people. Uh, the, uh, it's customary in Vancouver in events like this to actually thank the Coast Salish people if something occurs in Vancouver for allowing the event to occur on their territory. So there's, uh, you have to proceed through a very rigorous protocol. Uh, you approach the Coast Salish people, uh, you tell them what you plan to do, uh, you seek their permission, uh, uh, you ask them if it's, uh, if it's going to be okay, uh, they offer their approval, and then you offer your thanks. Uh, and uh, that protocol, as far as I know, is now more or less in place and is, uh, was, um, was followed. So I don't think there was any, any problem with the totem pole figures that were shown in the opening ceremonies. Okay, we've got a person. One more question, I think. Austin Fennell. Yes. I'd like to ask you about um, the, uh, a little going back, do you say the genesis of the totem pole had to do with power and privilege and wealth within the community? And that was represented on the totem. Um, does that still inspire the creation of the totems today? Uh, oh, uh, totem poles are now carved uh, for different things. The revival itself from the 19, late 1930s onward uh, was primarily to turn First Nations traditional arts into a saleable commodity, which changes their meaning substantially. Now, so did that happen to totem poles? To a degree, yes, it did. Uh, and so totem poles became objects for sale. And it's a complicated question there. But the other part of your question is, are they still raised among the Northwest Coast villages? And uh, do they still display traditional crests and that belong to a single person? And the answer to that is, yes, they do. Uh, yes, they are. Uh, I'm on the Gitkasan, for example. Uh, those people who lived up the Skeena River, we saw the image of Kitwankul. They are still, uh, have been since time immemorial, uh, been raising poles and are still raising poles uh, to uh, uh, validate uh, chieftainships and uh, prerogatives and rights and privileges and names. So yes, but there are other totem poles that, such as the ones we saw scattered around the world that are commissioned by non-native people, and they too exist, but they coexist, but in a completely different cultural milieu. Well, I think that's it. You guys have been great. Uh, thank you for sitting through this. I hope I didn't miss too much because I realized in half an hour and 100 years uh, it's going to get a little thin. Uh, but hope that's left you with something. And uh, thank you very much for uh, the questions and your uh, being here and participating in this uh, great opportunity that SACPA is offering for uh, uh, continuing discussions of various uh, um, topics. Um, Lethbridge, as I say, is an incredible community, uh, intellectually, culturally, and artistically. You guys are part of it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.